Hello everyone, how are we doing today? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, I just want to remind you to hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. If you have a moment, I would also love for you to rate and review Killer Instinct as well. I love hearing your feedback and being able to improve this podcast as much as possible for your enjoyment. So if you have a moment, I would really appreciate that as well. So as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the extremely disturbing and upsetting case of James Bulger. James was two years old when he was murdered on February 12th, 1993 in Liverpool, England. I know I say this in a lot of cases. I said it in last week's case as well. However, this is definitely one of the most disturbing, shocking, and upsetting cases that we have covered here on Killer Instinct. So without giving anything else away, let's just get right on into it. James Patrick Bulger was born on March 16th, 1990 to his parents. Ralph and Denise Bulger. James was described as a typical two-year-old boy. He loved playing. He had a great sense of humor for his age. To give you an example, something that he actually liked to do was he actually liked to call his father Ralph, which was his first name, and he did this because he heard everyone else call his dad Ralph, so he thought that he should call his dad Ralph as well. So he definitely had a sense of humor, and he was coming into his own personality. James was a beautiful little boy. He had brown hair and a smile that would just light you up. His mom, Denise, described him as a character. He was always laughing, always smiling, and very charismatic. Let's jump to Friday, February 12th, 1993. So on this particular day, James was at the New Strand Shopping Center in Boodle, which is a town in the Metropolitan Bureau of Merseyside, England, and he was with his mother, Denise. At about 3.30 p.m. that day, Denise and James went into the butcher's shop, which was located on the ground floor of the shopping center. Now, according to Denise, while she was checking out from this butcher's store, paying for the items that she was purchasing, she had turned away from James for only moments before turning around and realizing that James was no longer standing by her side. And when Denise noticed that James was no longer standing by her, she immediately rushed into a panic and alerted the staff that her son was missing, which was when they wasted no time in calling the authorities. So within about 30 minutes of James going missing, authorities arrived on the scene, and when trying to talk to Denise to get a description of James, the authorities said that she was absolutely distraught and couldn't give them any information because she was so upset. However, she kept repeating that James would have just never wandered off on his own. He's not the type of kid to just walk away from a situation. He knows not to leave his mom's side. So because of this, Denise automatically assumed that something really bad must have happened to James. Now, at first, police actually thought it was a really good possibility that James could have just walked off on his own. They were in a shopping center. They were in a mall. If something caught his attention or if he was distracted by something, it's not uncommon for toddlers to walk off in this type of situation because they can get distracted very easily. So authorities saw 
that what could have happened was James could have either walked into another store or he was hiding in a cupboard. Maybe he got scared from all of the commotion going on. However, they quickly learned that that was not the case when it came to be about two hours later at 5.30 p.m. with the shopping center closed and the hours continued to get later and later and James was still missing. Now that is when the serious concerns about James' whereabouts and safety really set in. Now one of the first things authorities did when looking into what happened to James was they looked into the surveillance footage of the mall. There were a total of 16 cameras placed throughout this shopping center and authorities looked at the surveillance that started at about 3.30 p.m., which was the time that Denise and James were in the butcher shop, and it was nine minutes later, timestamped at 3.39 p.m., that James was seen leaving the butcher shop. One minute later at 3.40 p.m., Denise was also seen leaving the butcher shop in a panic, and by that point, it was seen through a different camera in the shopping center that James had already made his way to the top floor level of the mall. But James was not alone. In the surveillance footage, it showed that James was following two boys throughout the shopping center, one who was holding his hand, guiding him through the mall, and the other who was leading the way to eventually lead James out of the mall completely. And by 3.43 p.m. on February 12th, James is seen leaving the mall with both boys. Police searched the entire mall all throughout the night, as well as the surrounding areas. However, they were unable to find James. The discovery of the surveillance footage wasn't made until late Friday night on February 12th, so now that leads us on to Saturday, February 13th. And at this point, James had been missing for about 19 hours, and authorities were very, very worried. And if you are unfamiliar with statistics, in the circumstance of a child abduction, most children don't live past the 24-hour mark after being abducted, so authorities knew that they were working against the clock here, and at this point, authorities decided to hold a press conference, which included James's parents. Both James's parents spoke at this press conference, pleading for anyone with any information or the people who took James themselves to just return James home. That's all they wanted, and the authorities alerted the public to be on high alert and to come forward with any possible information if they were to have it. Authorities also showed clips from the surveillance footage that shows James leaving the mall with two unidentified boys. Now, the quality of this surveillance footage was very, very poor. It was very grainy, not clear whatsoever. You couldn't get an accurate description other than the fact that these boys looked to be younger. Authorities said that these boys were probably in their early teens. They guessed around 13 years of age, and they also were able to determine that both of these boys were white. Now, because of this, police ended up interviewing about 60 young boys between the ages of 13 and 15 years old, because again, that's the age range they thought that they were working with. Now, from the beginning, this whole situation confused everybody. It confused civilians, it confused authorities, no one understood understood why two teenage boys would be taking James from the mall and what they could possibly want with him. However, because he left with two teenage boys, it did give everyone a slight bit of hope that James would be found alive and well, and that this could have possibly just been one big misunderstanding, because James wasn't seen leaving with anyone who physically appeared to be a threat. He wasn't leaving with some large adult male or just an adult in general. He was 
was leaving with two boys who seemed to be in their adolescence, so they thought that this could possibly result in a hopeful outcome. Now, after this press conference was held, there was actually multiple witnesses who came forward stating that they saw a boy who looked like James walking near the Liverpool Canal with other young boys with him. So because of this, the canal was one of the first places that authorities conducted a major search. They sent divers in there to look to see if James's body was there. However, this search ended up with nothing, and they also had searchers go through the wasteland, alleys, railway lines, really anywhere that you could think of authorities were searching. There was actually over a hundred law enforcement members that were searching for James, as well as all of his family members. However, after the second night of James being missing, the searches still came up empty-handed. So now we move on to Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1993, two full days after James had been missing, and on this particular day at the Walton Police Department, a young boy had run into the police station saying that him and his friends had found what he thought was a body on the railway tracks. And just for clarification, the railway tracks are train tracks, and these train tracks were about three miles away from the shopping center that James was at with his mother. So once authorities got word that there was a possible body found, they went down to the site and discovered that there was a body on the railway tracks. Now at this time, shortly after the discovery of this body, James's uncle was actually the one who positively identified the body of James Bulger. Now when James's body was found, the scene was absolutely horrific. He had been hit by a train and his body had been torn in half. However, even though he was hit by a train, it was very clear based on the other injuries he sustained that this was anything but an accident. James suffered from 42 injuries overall. He had 22 bruises, cuts, and grazes on his face and 20 wounds on his body. The medical examiner concluded that James had been hit over the head with bricks in stones, he was kicked onto the ground, he had batteries shoved into his mouth, and his face had been stomped on as well. It was also concluded that he was hit over the head with a 22-pound iron bar, resulting in James having 10 skull fractures. James's injuries were so severe that the medical examiner had no way in telling which injury was James's actual cause of death, and after the torture was completed, James was laid on the train tracks and his head was weighted down, and this to police meant that whoever was responsible for this had placed James on the tracks and hoped to make it look like an accident. Then when the train came, it hit James and ended up ripping his body into two pieces. The medical examiner concluded that James had passed away from his injuries before the train had hit him, so by the time he got struck by the train, he was already dead. Police do believe there was a sexual component involved in James's death because when James's body was discovered, he was found without his shoes, without his socks, without pants, and without underwear. All of those items had been removed from his body. Now, before we move on to the investigation, I want to talk about the effect this case had on Liverpool. This case was all over the media. Everyone knew about it and everyone was talking about it. To this day, it is still one of the most 
most prolific cases. This case made people so much more protective over their kids than before. Parents were buying leashes for their kids left and right so much that they were going out of stock and authorities really used a scare tactic on the society and told people the reality of the situation, which was that James's mom, Denise, turned away for two seconds to pay for what she was purchasing. All it took was two seconds and James was gone. Authorities also turned to the public to ask them that if anyone could identify the two boys that James was seen leaving with on the surveillance footage to come forward, or if anyone had any other information at all to contact the authorities. Now, this plea to the public led to a total of 38 witnesses coming forward claiming to have seen James at some point after he left the mall that day. However, these bystanders did not do anything to intervene on what was happening. 38 people saw James leading up to his death and no one did anything about it. Now there was a woman who walked past the boys, James, as well as the two older boys he was with and James was crying. However, this woman said that she didn't think that there was anything wrong considering James was with two other children, so she did nothing about it. One witness remembered seeing James being walked on the street by two boys crying and screaming for his mother. One witness claimed to have seen James getting kicked in the stomach for not not following orders as instructed. One woman did end up approaching the boys while they were near the canal, however left after the boys that James was with claimed that they found him at the bottom of the hill and they were taking him to the police station. After that, there was another woman who saw James with the boys and was concerned for his safety. She told the boys that she was going to take James to the police station herself and asked another woman who was passing by if she would watch her dog while she took James James to the police. However, this woman had a daughter with her and apparently her daughter didn't do well with the dogs or the dog didn't do well with the daughter. There was some problem with the child and the dog and so because of this, this all just kind of went away. Both women went on their way. It's incredibly frustrating to see how many times James could have been saved if just one person out of the 38 witnesses who saw him did something. I think a big factor that has played in here is the fact that the two two boys appeared to be non-threatening. It's not like James was seen with a grown man or multiple adults. He was seen with two other children, which probably blinded most witnesses. So fast forward to the night of February 15th, one day after James's body had been discovered, and there was a woman who had called into the police station saying that she had just seen the surveillance footage, and she actually recognized one of the boys that James had been walking with in the surveillance. She told police that the boy she recognized had actually skipped school that day with his friend, and to have two young boys who skipped school on the same day that James went missing and one of them being identified by a woman who knew him, this automatically became a lead for the authorities. These boys were identified as 10-year-old Robert Thompson and 10-year-old John Venables. This woman said that both boys were well-known 
known to always miss school and for getting into trouble. Now, this completely threw police through a loop because they never assumed that the boys that they were looking for were 10 years old. Authorities had been questioning boys that, again, were 13 to 15 years old because that's the age range they thought that they were working with. So they were very thrown off when they figured out that their new suspects and leads were just 10 years old. By February 18, 1993, authorities were ready to make an arrest. But before we get into that, let's back up a little bit and talk about who these boys were. Robert Thompson lived in Walton, which is not far away from where James was murdered. He lived with his mother and his two younger brothers, and he also had four older brothers as well. So he was one of seven siblings, but none of the older brothers lived with him at this time. As far as Robert's father, it was believed that he was incredibly abusive towards Robert's mother, and the boys grew up basically watching their father beat their mother before their dad ultimately ended up leaving the family after he started having an affair with a woman that he met on a family vacation. After Robert's father left, it was definitely a huge huge strain on Robert's mother. As you can imagine, she's just been left by her husband to raise seven kids now on her own. So because of this, she ended up turning to alcohol and developed alcoholism. She became an alcoholic. And along with this, seven weeks after Robert's father left, the house that they all lived in was actually burnt to the ground. All eight of them, all of the kids, as well as their mother had left the house that day. And when they came back, the house was burnt to the ground. They ended up staying in a homeless shelter for about two months before moving back into a tiny, tiny house that could barely fit them all. Now, with all of these things considered, all of the boys started acting out. With seven boys, things are bound to get rowdy, and that's exactly what happened here. It was said that the boys ended up starting to turn on each other and bully each other. The older ones would bully the younger ones and go down the line of age and so on and so forth, and the boys constantly missed school. It was even said that the older boys would bully the younger brothers and said that they would beat them up if they did go to school that day. So sometimes they skipped just because they felt like it, but sometimes they skipped because they were getting bullied into it by their older brothers. In one school year, Robert ended up missing 49 of the 150 days of the school year. Robert was also known to shoplift. Sometimes he would shoplift things for his brothers and his mother to try and help out the family, and sometimes he would shoplift toys for himself as well. I do want to mention that there was an occasion where Robert's younger brother was found wandering by himself near the exact same shopping center where James Bulger was taken from, and he was visibly scared and crying and was very upset, and when someone approached him and asked what was wrong, he told them that his older brother Robert and a friend of his, who by the way is not John Venables, but a different friend, had taken him there, kicked him to the ground, and left him by himself while the two of them walked home. Now, when they were going to make the arrests on both boys, the detectives split up. One detective went to Robert Thompson's home, and the other went to John Venable's home. The detective who went to Robert Thompson's house said that when he arrived at the home, he was let in by Robert's mother, who he then explained the situation of what was happening to and why he was there. In the midst of this, the detective also met Robert's young brother, who was about seven years old at the time, and the younger brother told the detective that he was aware of the murder of James.
victims and that him and Robert had actually taken flowers down to the murder site where people were dropping off flowers and gifts and posters. Robert and his younger brother visited the site and brought flowers themselves. The detective who went to arrest Robert said that when he told Robert he was being arrested, Robert burst into what the detective called crocodile tears. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. Now, when it came to John Venables, he came from a pretty traditional family. John was one of three siblings. He had an older brother and a younger sister. Both of his siblings did have learning disabilities. However, John did not. And what I mean by a traditional family is that John's father definitely felt like he needed to play the role of the provider and the breadwinner. He needed to go out and get a job and provide for the family. And his wife needed to stay at home and take care of the children. Now, as you can imagine, having two children with learning disabilities takes a lot of care and attention. So oftentimes, John would feel neglected or as if he was being pushed to the side. And when John was one year old, his maternal grandfather actually passed away, which left his grandmother without a husband. So because of this, John's mom definitely felt like she needed to be a caregiver to her mother as well. So when this happened, she packed up all three kids and ended up moving in with her mom. Now, while they both maintained that they stayed together during this time, John's father did not end up moving in with them and he ended up getting a place of his own. And eventually they ended up moving into a different house where John said he was relentlessly bullied by the kids in the neighborhood, many of who picked on his siblings for their disabilities. John was described by his teachers as an attention seeker. He was constantly acting out in class. He was making loud noises, banging his head, head into this desk, and he even tried to strangle another student with a ruler on one occasion, which resulted in him being suspended from school for two days. However, his mother ended up keeping him from school for much longer. She kept him away from school for 10 weeks as her own form of punishment. So because he missed so much school, he ended up having to transfer, and he got held back a grade because of everything that he missed, which was ultimately what landed him in the same grade as Robert Thompson. Now, when the detective went to John's home, the door was answered by John's mother, and once explained the situation, John's mother called for him, and the detective said that John stood at the top of the stairs and looked down at the detective. Both detectives described the boys as being very small in height. It was shocking that detectives were going to arrest them when seeing the size and the age of the boys. One detective described John looking as young as eight years old. He said, 
said that even though he was only 10 years old, he looked younger than that. And that was honestly the big argument in this. A lot of people didn't believe that these two 10-year-old boys were the ones responsible. After their arrest even, authorities went on talk shows and news stations asking that if anyone had any other possible information to come forward, if there was anything that they were getting wrong about this case to come forward, because police didn't want to believe that two 10-year-olds could do this. It didn't make sense to anyone. So let's talk about the first interrogation. So right after the boys were arrested, they were taken to separate police stations for their interviews. And let's start out by saying that neither of the detectives that did the interviews on the boys had ever interviewed murder suspects that were so incredibly young. Detectives say the initial part of the interrogation was asking the boys questions, trying to make sure they knew why they were there, and also to make sure that they knew the difference between right and wrong. The detective sergeant interviewing Robert Thompson had asked Robert if James being killed was right or wrong, which Robert replied with, it was wrong. John had told authorities when asked where he was the day that James went missing that he was at the mall that James was also at, and he also admitted to actually seeing James at the mall. And in Robert's second interview, he also admitted the same thing. He said that he was also at the mall that James was last seen at, and he said that he also saw James there as well. So at this point, both boys have admitted to being at the mall and seeing James. Now, according to the detective sergeant who was interviewing Robert, he said that one of the ways in which Robert slipped up at first was that Robert admitted that he could describe in very great detail what James was wearing the day that he went missing. And most people, especially a 10-year-old, aren't going to notice every little detail of someone. You're not going to notice exactly what they were wearing. So the fact that Robert could recite in great detail what James was wearing that day was definitely a red flag for the detectives. Now, a slip-up from John's side from the detective standpoint was that while being interviewed, John had asked detectives if it was possible to detect fingerprints from someone's skin. Now, when police heard this, they knew that there was more to it. They knew that John was asking this for a reason, and this had been weighing heavily on his mind. And then by Friday, February 19th, Robert Thompson admitted to taking James from the mall and taking him to the train tracks, where he said that John started throwing paint at him. Robert said that while this was happening, James started crying and screaming for his mother and actually mimicked James and reenacted his voice when telling this story. Now, Robert basically blamed everything on John. He said that he was a part of taking James from the shopping center and bringing him to the train tracks. However, once they got there, he ended up leaving and didn't have any part in the actual murder. So basically saying that this whole thing was John's ordeal and John's idea. And when it came to John, he continuously tried to maintain his innocence, saying that he was at the scene of the crime. However, it was Robert who was responsible and Robert did everything. So basically, both boys were just trying to accuse the other at this point. John said that Robert was actually throwing bricks at James until he fell over. And eventually, police were able to piece together what happened on February 12th. So on the afternoon of February 12th, James was taken from the mall by both 
with Robert and John, who walked with James for three miles, but this actually wasn't their original plan. The original plan that Robert and John had was that they were planning on abducting a child from the mall that day and pushing them in front of a car or taxi. That way they would get hit and die. However, when they abducted James, their original plan didn't go as expected, which is when they decided to start their three-mile walk towards the train tracks. So after this confession, at 6.30 p.m. on Saturday, February 20th, 1993, both Robert and John were charged with the abduction and murder of James Bulger. So this trial started on November 1st, 1993, eight months after the murder, and took place in Preston. This case was such a widely known case. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody knew about it. And on the day the trial began, over 500 people ended up showing up at the courthouse. Both boys pleaded not guilty to the charges of murder, abduction, and attempted abduction. And the attempted abduction charge came from an incident that happened earlier on in the day of February 12th. And that was when the boys attempted to lead another two-year-old boy away and abduct him. However, this plan did not follow through because this boy's mother stopped this from happening. Now, as far as the events leading up to the murder that day, on February 12th, John was on his way to school. He was walking to school to pick up the school gerbils that he was taking care of for the weekend. I don't know if you guys had that when you were in school, where if you had a class pet, you could sign up to take the class pet home for the weekend, but that's essentially what this was. And on his way walking to school, he ended up running into his best friend, Robert Thompson. Robert and John got to talking, and Robert convinced John to actually skip school with him and go shoplifting at the Strand, the shopping center where James was taken from. Now, this was something that they did quite frequently, so it didn't take too much convincing. The boys would often skip school, and they would often go shoplift. So after convincing John to come with him, the two of them went to the Strand Mall and did their usual shoplifting, but on this particular day, they got bored pretty quickly. And that was when it was said that Robert then looked at John and told him, let's take a kid. Like I said, the two of them had attempted to abduct one boy before James. However, the boy's mom intervened before that could happen. And that is when the boys tried again and ended up abducting James. The court ruled again what the detectives had also said, which was that both boys were capable of knowing the difference between right and wrong, which means that they knew that they were acting with criminal intent. 20 hours worth of tape recordings were played back during the trial, and the prosecution argued that Robert Thompson was considered the ringleader in this. He was more the dominant one out of the two. However, it was said that it was John's idea to take James to the train tracks. Regardless of who was more dominant and who wasn't, both of them acted as a team in this, and as far as evidence goes, the blue paint that was found on James was also found on the boy's clothing, and pieces of James' hair was recovered on Robert's shoe and John's coat. Like I mentioned earlier, there was blue paint found in James's eye, and this was the same blue paint that was found on the boy's clothing. The trial lasted 17 days, and after that, the jury was sent out to give their verdict, which they deliberated on for about six 
hours, and after deliberation, it was found that both Robert Thompson and John Vanderbilt were both guilty of all charges. Here's something you need to know as well. Up until this point, both Robert and John were being referred to as Child A and Child B. This was to protect their identity because they were so young at the time. However, it was after the trial that the judge decided to make the decision to release the boys' real names as well as school pictures in order for the public to know who they were. At this point, the boys had turned 11 years old, so they were 11 when they were sentenced, however 10 when the murder occurred. As far as sentencing goes, this is where a lot of contradicting opinions have arisen. The judge ordered both boys, after being charged with the murder, to serve eight years in juvie, essentially. And having both boys only receive a minimum of eight years for the brutal and torturous murder of James was absolutely devastating for Denise. And because of this, Denise ended up fighting the sentencing to get it raised, which she was actually able to do. And along with Denise fighting this, there was actually a newspaper called The Sun who started a petition and this petition was to also raise the boy's sentencing and this petition received over 280,000 signatures and both boys actually ended up getting 15 years minimum after this. However, this is where things get tricky because the 15 years that the boys were then given was actually given by the government, not criminal lawyers. So it was ruled that the government really had no place to give the boys a higher sentence, so the sentences were brought back down to 10 years. So now both boys were sentenced to serve 10 years in juvie. Robert Thompson was held at the Barton Moss Secure Care Center in Manchester, while John Venables was detained in Vardy House, which is a small eight-bedded unit at the Red Bank Secure Unit in St. Helens on Manchester. Aside. The location of which the boys were staying was actually not even made public until after the boys were released to protect their safety, and John's parents visited him frequently, and Robert's mother visited him every three days as well. Now, while being locked up, the boys received their education, and not just any education, they received one-on-one -on -one learning, which a lot of people had problems with because one-on-one -on -one learning is very expensive, but John and Robert were both just given that for free. It was said that both boys suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and that John in particular would often have nightmares and flashbacks of the murder. And as far as the accommodations while they were locked up, both boys got it pretty well considering the circumstances. Both boys were given rooms with TVs in them and they had video games that they could play, they had movies that they could watch, they were given good food, they were supervised 24-7 to make sure their safety was kept. And also, the boys were actually allowed out of the unit completely. Only a year into their sentence, Robert Thompson was actually allowed to leave the entire unit, so like the entire juvie facility, and go for a walk in the local park. And I'm sure he was supervised, however, the point is that they had so much freedom even while being locked up. The defense that the boys' supervisors were given was that they were trying to prepare the boys for when they ended up going back into the real world and back into society. They wanted them to learn how to function properly. And that was their defense as to why they gave them so much freedom. Now, in 1999, it was brought to the attention by the European court that the boys' trial in 1993, so their original trial, 
was not impartial. So due to this concern, the boys' trials were reviewed once again, and this included their sentencing being reviewed once again. And this review determined that the boys were actually going to be released much sooner than anticipated. In June 2001, both Robert and John were released. And as you can imagine, this caused an uproar of emotion. People were frustrated. They were angry. They were sad. So many different emotions had been thrown around because of this decision. Now, when they were released, both boys were given completely new identities. They were given new passports, new birth certificates, new names, new everything. And they were also put into an undisclosed secret location. That way, no one would be able to track them down and easily find them. Both Robert and John were prohibited from contacting each other if they ever found out about the other's new identity, and they were also prohibited from contacting James Bulger's family, as well as ever being in the Merseyside area again. So the boys were released. However, nine years after they were set free, John Venables actually re-offended, and he was arrested after there were countless amounts of child pornography found on his computer. He had downloaded over 57 indecent images of children over a 12-month period and was charged for this crime. He completely pled guilty and was sentenced to two years in prison. However, during the trial for this particular offense, it actually came out that John had been violating his terms of probation this entire time. He was doing things like going out partying, going to bars, going to nightclubs, and he was even known to visit the area that was just five minutes away from where James's mother Denise lived. And when Denise found this out, she was obviously completely distraught by this because it made her question if she had ever seen John. Was this someone that she had spoken to? Was it someone she had gotten a drink next to? Was it someone that she had been sitting next to in a restaurant or a bar? This completely threw her off. And it was also revealed that John, on two different occasions, had revealed his true identity. And because of this, he was given a whole new identity in 2011. And they ended up actually keeping him in prison from 2011 to 2013, just for the sake of the authorities being worried he was going to go out and share his new identity again. The courts decided that if John was going to go out and reveal his identity, they would rather just him be in prison for two years so he wouldn't have the chance to do that. Then fast forward to February 2018, John Venables pled guilty again for possession of child pornography for a second time. He admitted to having over 392 category A images, 148 category B images, and 630 category C images. And just to clarify, the categories are just the ranking of what is deemed the worst of the worst. So A being the worst of the worst, and then it slowly makes its decline from there. And just as a clarification, absolutely none of them, regardless of the category or ranking, are acceptable. And John was then sentenced again to three years and four months in prison, which he is currently serving. As far as the anonymity of this case goes, a lot of people have varying opinions. And as far as James's parents, they have been 
been trying for years and years to get the true identity of John and Robert revealed and for them to not have the, the privilege of hiding behind these new names and lives that they have been given for torturing a young boy, basically just to make their own lives easier. James's murder was torturous. It was brutal. It was senseless. And I do believe that they should be locked away for way, way longer than they were, considering the fact that one of them has already reoffended multiple times. I think more so than anything, their identity should be revealed for public safety. You want to know who you're living next to. You want to know who your neighbor is, who your co-worker is. You as a human have the right to know these things for your safety as well, who you're surrounding yourself with. So for that reason, I do believe their identity should be released, but it's a very controversial topic that I'm really interested to hear your opinion on. So that is all we have today, you guys. That is the James Bulger case. I know it's a big one, but this case is mind-blowing on so many levels, and I do know that James's parents are no longer together, and Denise went on to have another baby whom she named Michael James. Again, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this one, so let me know. Let me know if you think that Robert and John's identity should be released. Let me know what your thoughts are on that. You can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I am your host of Killer Instinct. Again, make sure you just go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. I will be back next week to share a brand new case with you guys. And until then, I'll I'll see you soon. Have a great week and stay safe.